Acts 21, beginning in verse 27. This is God's Word. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews, which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against this, the people and the law in this place. And further, brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. And as they were about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, who immediately took the soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. When they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. And the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. And some cried one thing and some another among the multitude. And when he could not know for certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. And when he came upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people, for the multitude of the people followed after, crying, Away with him. In Romans 13, Paul writes, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Then again, Paul never was driving a car past a police officer who was parked on the side of the road. Perhaps you have a different response to mine whenever I uh, engage in this, and even when I am very scrupulous about my speed, if I drive past a police car parked on the side of the road, I feel a tightening of the chest. I look at my speedometer. I refresh my memory as to what the speed limit is on this particular road. I go through all of the things that could be wrong with my car for which I could be pulled over, and I look in my rearview mirror just to make sure that the car stays on the side of the road. Perhaps it's the fear that I could have missed something in my vehicle's upkeep or condition. And maybe uh, this is a commonality that all of us, when dealing with government officials, always go through our minds what could go wrong, but that just might be me. After all, Paul is no stranger to encounters with government officials, with, to soldiers and to magistrates. And that he can write this statement that t- rulers are a terror, are not a terror to good works, but to the evil, considering what he has endured through the hands of government officials, even up to this point in the book of Acts, seems to challenge our own outlook. How many times had he been wrongfully arrested, imprisoned, and beaten under color of law? And yet he maintains this positive outlook regarding the purpose for which God ordains the civil magistrate. Now, this story is not necessarily a defense of the idea of the civil magistrate. It is uh, that Paul finds himself again at the mercy of Roman authority, the same authority that crucified his Savior. And there is something in this uh, parallelism that is chilling. And yet, despite the fact that he falls into these hands, he maintains an apparent calm. During a story which is so full of confusion, Paul seems not to participate in it and be able to think relatively clearly. Confusion, that is a part of this passage, even enters into the commentaries as some accuse Paul of wrongdoing. 
They ask questions like, how could Paul participate in a sacrificial system that Jesus had fulfilled? Is not Luke recording that this was a misstep on this part of Paul? Such questions and accusations, I believe, narrow the understanding of the Old Testament and reflect a negative view of the Jerusalem church and make Gentile worship normative in the Christian church. And thus we must cut through the confusion, and I suggest we look at this passage, seeing the truth behind confusion, the threat posed by confusion, and the testimony needed in confusion. The truth behind confusion, the threat posed by confusion, and the testimony needed in confusion. The arrest of Paul occurs because of confusion between truth and assumption. We see this in, as Luke records the accusation leveled against Paul and the misapprehension behind it. Again, as we begin, I'm going to take a either neutral or positive view of Paul's engagement in the temple. I don't find Paul violating his Christian conscience by engaging in this activity of the Nazarite vow or purification. It absolutely fits what Paul says of his own ministry in 1 Corinthians 9.20. Unto the Jews I became a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them under the law is under the law, that I may gain them that are under law. I've become all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. He engages in this purification and vow ritual as a part of the culture that is a part of the Old Testament. And with all this, it's hard to see how he is doing so in a way that violates Christian ethics or diminishes Christ's crosswork. Instead, uh, the accusation of Paul's contemporary have uh, more color to them than those of, his, uh, of the commentaries. Look at verse 27. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. First, we meet his accusers. We are at the point that Paul is almost done with his purification. It's almost time for the sacrifices for those who are doing the Nazarite vow. And as Paul is uh, arranging things in the temple, some Jews from Asia see him there. These uh, Jews from Asia are ones that are a part of that province which Paul has been laboring in for over two years. It's almost as if we're still in the third missionary journey. The third missionary journey that before it even begins, the focus goes to Ephesus. And is always in Ephesus. It's almost as if the entire third missionary journey should be renamed Paul's mission to Ephesus. And here, uh, this, this is the region uh, that from which the Jews are bringing this riot. They see him in the temple. They stir up the people and lay hands on him. They arrest him. We see that it is from the, his work in Asia, from his work in Ephesus, that they bring accusation against Paul in verse 28. Crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against this people, and the law in this place, and further brought Greeks into, also into this temple and hath polluted this holy place. These Jews from Asia call for help from the men of Israel. Uh, these, this, these are Jews. They uh, abide by the same religious strictures, but they live in a different area. They live in Asia. And if you look at a map, Asia is a pretty far distance from, or the province of Asia is pretty far distance. Ephesus is a pretty far distance from Jerusalem. 
And maybe they are uncertain. They don't want this to be a kind of provincial thing. You know, these Jews from Asia, they're just rabble-rousing here. They're disturbing our Jerusalem peace. Instead, they want this to be an entire uh, Israelite, uh, faithful to the Old Testament response to what they see as an active threat, an act of rebellion. And that rebellion, they accuse Paul of this rebellion. Rebellion against the people, the law, the place of Israel. Look, this man that teaches all men everywhere against the people, against the law, and against this place. None of these accusations we know are true. He does not teach all men everywhere against the people. If you've read Romans chapter 9, you know that Paul has a heart burden for Israel. He cares about them. He loves them. He wants them to come to the knowledge of the truth. He does not have a problem with the law of God. In fact, he affirms the law of God in Romans chapter 7. The law is good, but I am a slave to sin. Even uh, toward the temple, Paul doesn't have much of a problem by virtue of his very presence there. But to support this final accusation, they charge Paul with desecration, that he has brought Greeks, he has brought Gentiles in to the temple. And for this, we must assume that some of these Jews from Asia were at least familiar with the, the uh, people and populace of Ephesus because that's where this accusation comes from, as you see in verse 29. For they had seen before with them in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed Paul had brought into the temple. Now, why does Luke care about this one accusation? He doesn't counter the accusation of his rebellion against the people, which he could have, or his rebellion against the law, which he could have, or his uh, kind of rebellion or teaching against the temple. Instead, it is this idea that he has desecrated the temple by bringing Greeks into it. This is the accusation he focuses on. Well, the answer to this, I think, can be found in uh, what Luke, also, what Luke has, uh, described as the Roman uh, authorities' view on this whole situation. If you remember back when uh, the Jews in Corinth bring Paul before Gallio, we talked about Gallio at that time, that he was a well-respected rhetorician, he was a respected Roman authority, and what Luke does by bringing him into the situation is, and describing at length and in detail what Gallio said, is to say this is what the Roman position ought to be concerning the issue between the Jews and the Christians. Gallio at that point said, if it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look ye to it, for I will be no judge in such matters." So if Gallio, in Luke's mind, is not going to get involved with questions of Jewish law, of people, of places, then why should he try to refute it? But Gallio says that he has an interest in what he calls wrong or wicked lewdness. And that wicked lewdness statement is probably, in some way, connected to desecration of temples. And so here, the desecration of a temple, any temple, would offend Roman pluralism, where theological or moral questions would not. And so that is why I think Luke focuses on refuting this last accusation. 
Against that accusation, Luke says, Paul is completely innocent. He didn't do what they're accusing him of. And they are basically assuming that he did because they saw him hanging out with this Gentile, Trophimus. They must have known that Trophimus was from uh, Ephesus. They must have recognized him uh, as being part uh, from that province in which Ephesus dwells. And so they assume that Paul... Since he was in the temple, he must have sneaked Trophimus in the temple, which seems to us to be a rather large leap in logic, and this was not the case, because in order to do so would be to put Trophimus's life on the line, because there was a plaque that history history, uh, clearly demonstrates that uh, was stood between the the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles could be, and the court of the women. You could not go past that sign that said, anyone who goes past here will be forfeiting their life. And yet, they are assumed that this is what Paul did. They assume this statement, this idea, inconsistent with the truth. But this is common to all sinful people. We often expect sinful people to act and think consistently with the truth and with rationality. And we often expect rationality uh, where we ought not. We live in strange and weird times. And anyone who spent time looking at the social media wars or examined the popularity of contemporary movements and political correctness or watch the fringes of our elected officials on C-SPAN should recognize that there is a decline in rational, logical, and reasonable discourse. We see quite clearly that sinful men, sinful people, often don't reason well. The classical apologist may long for a day when evidentiary argument ruled the day, but such modernist sensibilities seem apart from our present postmodern mindset. We can try to bring evidence to bear to rational people, but rational thought seems to be far a field. So what do we do? Do we abandon rationalists and engage in the kind of uh, muckraking and mud-throwing that goes on in our day and age that masquerades as reasonable discourse? No. We continue to proclaim the reasonableness, the rationality, and the evidence for Jesus. We do not have illusions of people's natural cognitive ability. We recognize that the mind has been affected by sin. But that doesn't stop us from proclaiming the gospel. That does not stop us from bearing witness to the truth or telling people what the reality is about sin and righteousness and forgiveness and holiness. And yet we do not trust completely to our ability to persuade. We trust in the power of the Holy Spirit using the Word of God to bring conviction and faith to people. Because that is the truth behind a world of confusion in which we find ourselves. But secondly, I want us to see the threat that is posed by confusion. For the mob does not act rationally. It acts in an atmosphere of confusion and often of violence. We see this as Paul is removed for death, but experiences a reprieve from the violence. A cry, this cry that is brought up in the temple, receives an answer from every part of the city. Look at verse 30. And the city was moved, all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. 
People running from all parts of the city to the temple in Jerusalem. You would be excused for thinking that Luke is engaging in some hyperbole. But we can understand how such a charge of desecration in such a charged environment could spread, spread like wildfire throughout the city. The people incensed by this event would rush into the temple to deal with it. The date of Paul's arrest in Jerusalem is set somewhere between AD 57 and 58. Eight or nine years later, Judea would revolt against Roman rule. The air of Jerusalem had always been filled with suspicion and hostility, but it grows as a new uh, emperor has taken, plate, taken the throne. And things aren't good in Rome, never were all that good. The next year, he would murder his mother and plunge the empire into toil and turmoil, only ending in his death in the ascension of Vespasian. All this to say, I don't doubt Luke when he claims that men from all over the city converge on the temple to, to rid it of this desecrator. As they deal with the desecrator, we find this somber statement. They took Paul, they drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. It's virtually the last time the temple is mentioned ever in the history of the New Testament. Luke adds this detail, and I agree with commentators who hear in the sound of this, the doors of the temple closing the final departure of the church from the temple environs. The church, which began on the day of Pentecost, the day around which time this event takes place, because remember, Paul wants to be in Jerusalem during the day of Pentecost. Here, some years later, where the church began, where the first apostles, speaking in tongues, spoke the word of the gospel in the temple precinct, now the doors of the temple are shut against the gospel. Twelve to fifteen years later, this building will experience the desecration of for which they accused Paul, when it would be overrun by Titus and ruined completely. As they take Paul out, Roman justice intervenes to save Paul from death. In the book of verse 31, And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. See, next to the temple, there was the Romans had occupied the fortress of Antonia. It was a citadel. In fact, it's, it's unique in the history because one of the interesting things that adds to the uh, the background of the crucifixion of our Savior, as Pilate comes into Judea as their province, he goes to Jerusalem, and the first thing he does is has all of the Roman soldiers put their shields on the fortress of Antonia, which overlooked the temple. And so from the temple, you could look up and see these Roman shields, and you might think, well, what's wrong with that? It's because they had the face of Caesar on those Roman shields. Because Pilate wanted to show he was a faithful Roman, which is why he did that. Of course, the Jews looked up and didn't see a faithful Roman trying to give credit to his patron. They looked up and saw a violation of the second commandment. And so they, all, they got upset. And that, you can imagine, this was the first introduction of their new Roman governor to the province, and he has just ticked off the entire city, ticked off the whole, entire nation, to be honest. That sets the stand, stage of the animosity between uh, 
Pilate and the religious leaders. But that's the fortress of Antonia overlooking uh, the temple from which uh, likely this uh, tribune hears of the commotion. And not only hears the commotion as if he hears you know, people getting upset down in the temple uh, below him or beside him next door, but he also hears the report from his soldiers that not only is there a disturbance in the temple, but the entire city has been affected by that disturbance. A decade before this event, the Roman governor had already had to execute two brothers who started an insurgent, violent uh, campaign in, in Galilee. This was a known troublesome province. Romans have always had problems in Judea. And they are very on edge. They, they are concerned whenever any province shows the least sign of uprising, and this one is definitely one. And so when he hears of uh, this uprising, that the entire city has been engaged in it, he acts quickly. He marshals his forces, as we see in verse 32, who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down up unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. This tribune doesn't waste any time. You get the sense of hurry, rush, immediately, running. They are not going to let things work themselves out. They're going to intervene immediately and stamp down whatever disturbance this is, lest it turn out into a full-blown rebellion against Roman authority. And the mob seems to be in awe. I mean... This is a tribune. He uh, probably has around about a thousand people under him. Notice in verse 32, there are soldiers and centurions, captains over hundreds. Now, captains over hundreds might be, you know, doesn't mean that there were actually a hundred people in his cohort. It means that that cohort could service up to a hundred, have up to a hundred people. So we don't know how many soldiers come rushing out of the fortress of Antonia down into the temple precincts to break up this fight. But it must have been an impressive force because all the people, all the mob who are in the process of killing Paul. Remember that. In verse uh, 31, and they went about to kill him. They're in the process of killing Paul. They are in the process of beating Paul. And the instant they see the Roman authorities rushing down to him, they go, okay. They back up. They stop. But for the intervention of the soldiers, Paul would surely have died. One of the themes of Peter's letters includes the idea of suffering despite doing well. In 1 Peter 3.16, we read, And having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. We read things like this and look at evidence of it in the Old Testament and New Testament and in the history of the church, and we see it being revealed, and we often forget that such will be the course of believers even in the 21st century. For me, we may accept suffering and persecution for the cause of Christ. We may accept suffering and persecution as a consequence of our actions. We may even see hatred being brought upon us for well-doing when we obey Christ and people re reject us. But here we see Paul suffering due to people's misunderstanding. Here we see 
Paul suffering, not because he's, yes, he's done something good and he's suffering for it, but that's not really the source of it. The source of it is these guys don't understand that he hasn't desecrated the temple. One of the haunting statements by a Roman magistrate comes from Pilate who says, in judgment of Jesus, what is truth? In the context, the Bible is placing Pilate outside the set of Jesus' disciples because Jesus has just said that his disciples are those who are uh, interested and follow the truth. And so Pilate, by saying what is truth, is saying that he is not a part of Jesus' disciples. But the statement still is chilling because here is a judge who is supposed to judge with justice, who shows complete, at least by the statement, unconcern about the truth. David Wells wrote a telling book with a chilling title, No Place for Truth, that uh, really deals with this idea within our public discourse. And the chilling part is he wrote it in the early 90s, 1991, if memory serves. And in a world where truth no longer has a place in discourse, we cannot be surprised if we suffer wrongfully. We cannot be surprised if our persecutors invent charges against us. We cannot be surprised if those who are outside of Christ lie about us, and we suffer because of those lies. But we must live in hope. Ultimately, we believe that the great judge of all the earth will balance the books and vindicate us on the day of judgment. Our hope ultimately is that God, the great judge of all the earth, will do what is right on that day of judgment, and he will vindicate his people. But practically, he also calls us to hope that the great judge who is pleased to judge at the last day and vindicate us before his throne will also vindicate us in this life. It's one of the great statements of the Old Testament from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our God can deliver us. Our God can vindicate us. Our God will vindicate us and save us from your hand, O King. But even if he does not, even if we do not experience vindication of this life, we are called to endure hardship with goodwill, to put shame to our accusers. Walk with good conscience. Walk with, in good conversation, good uh, obedience to Christ, that those who speak evil of you as evildoers may be ashamed because they cannot find fault, at least not in the truth. We see the truth behind confusion and the threat posed by confusion, and finally, the testimony needed in confusion. Arrested, Paul needs to answer the charges leveled against him. The Roman soldiers have given him a reprieve from violence, but bonds and violence still await him. The tribune puts Paul in chains, just as Agabus prophesied, as we see in verse 33. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. The two chains here may involve the hands and the feet, as we saw in Agabus, uh, but more likely Paul is chained to two guards who would ensure that he would not escape. The tribune demands an accounting regarding Paul's identity and the charges level against him. Who are you and what have you done? 
But he's probably asking, the text makes it kind of uncertain, at least in this verse, who he's asking. But if you look at his next statement, he's probably asking the mob themselves. Who is this guy and what has he done? Now look at verse 34. And some cried one thing and some another among the multitude. And when they could not know for a certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. The mob had ceased their violence by the approach of military force. They see all these soldiers coming out of the fortress, and so they stop trying to kill Paul. And the, the tribune's mistake was to re-engage the mob in this event. Rumor had gathered this mob together, and rumor in, in such a short space of time is like a game of telephone. You remember the game of telephone? We played it when we were kids. You, know, you would gather in a circle or a line and you'd whisper something to the first person and they whisper to the next and then it goes down the line in the telephone. And the laugh was that the person who was at the end of the line often got a garbled uh, misunderstanding of what was going on and what the first message was. Well, the same happens in this rumor. Likely because everyone has a different explanation for why they are there and why they want to kill this guy. One person is saying one thing, one person is another, and so the tribune is completely baffled. What's going on here? And in order to uh, get uh, a clear idea, to, to administer justice, he decides Paul needs to be removed from the situation and brought back into the fortress of Antonia until he can figure out what's going on. The mistake in dealing with the mob appears in the struggle that ensued later. Look at verse 25. And when he was upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. So here's the problem with re-engaging the mob. It gives them an opportunity to get their anger up again and to lose their fear of the tribune. And here's these soldiers coming down, and they're, they're so scary that everyone stops what they're doing. But when they see uncertainty in the tribune, when he doesn't, can't figure out what's going on, they have the opportunity, their fear subsides, and they, their anger reemerges, and they start attacking Paul again. And their hostility and anger is of such a virulence that they can't just take Paul calmly and peaceably into the fortress. Even on the steps of the fortress, and if you know, do you, you remember back in the whole story about uh, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, and how they all had to do this dance around uh, Pilate? Because they couldn't go into Pilate's house because they didn't want to be profaned because it was going to be a feast day. They don't want, didn't want to be unclean. Well, apparently this mob is so violent that they're following the soldiers up the steps, uh, likely going into what would be a Gentile place where they would be ceremonially unclean, not caring because they want Paul dead. So intense is their anger that it says that the soldiers have to carry. Now, I don't know what that meant. Maybe, you know, I don't think, you know, in my mind, I see Paul body surfing up the steps and kind of this hilarious expression to keep him away. And that might be exactly what was happening in order to keep this, this man away from the violence of the mob. The mob had not finished with Paul. They had not changed their intention regarding his person. And you see this in verse 36. The mob of the people followed after, crying, away with him. The mob wanted him dead. And I think Luke uses this, word, this phrase, and commentators also make this point, that this phrase, away with him, is the exact phrase that Luke uses of Jesus and the crowd's statement of him. And I think that 
uh, points us back to a more important event, more important than Paul was his the what more important than what happened to Paul was what happened to his savior for he faced the same kind of event the jews sought who sought the death of paul were also the people group who sought the, the death of jesus as well and at the hands of roman soldiers and that death was more than a revolutionary dying for a cause it was god dying for his people For all people deserve death and hell, and Jesus, who is God, came into this world, for God would not condemn all to that fate. Instead, he acted to satisfy his own justice. Jesus came into the world who lived a perfect life and died unjustly, condemned where we should have been condemned. We who deserve the justice of God, it didn't fall upon us, it fell upon him. Jesus, who did not deserve the condemnation of man, suffered in our place instead of us. If we believe on him, we receive him and all of his benefits. So do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Turn from your sin and follow him. Immediately preceding the verse that I quoted in 1 Peter, we read this, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you, a reason of of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. In the confusion of the mob, we must have a ready answer, a defense prepared. And we'll unpack this, if you will, next week as we look at Paul's address to the people on these very steps. He will explain exactly why it is that he is being persecuted, and he will point them to Christ. In the confusion of the mob, we are also to have an answer ready, defense prepared, a defense to answer the question that the centurion it said, who are you and what did you do? We face the hatred of the world with the message of God's love in Jesus. And this testimony may not cause the violence of the mob to abate. In fact, it will not satisfy the mob on the steps of the fortress of Antonia. After all, it also conveyed the early church martyrs to the Colosseum. And yet it is our duty as we testify in hope. For grace can bring truth to any heart, and the preaching of the gospel can bring life to dry bones. It can turn away the wrath and violence of the most hostile. And Paul, you would think, Paul, here as he looks at his own nationality, his own ethnicity, seeking his death, seeking his extinction because of his commitment to Christ, can he not see in their eyes his own? And recognize that as he was arrested by his Savior on the road to Damascus, so that same power can arrest and turn away the hostility of those into faith. You see, we can trust God's grace when we bear witness to him because we have evidence of what that grace does in our own hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, in distress, in persecution, in suffering, help us to trust in you. Make us bold to testify to your grace that we see in our own hearts and lives. Give us sense to understand the irrationality of unbelief. Strengthen our hearts in times of trial. 
For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.